Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. What up, Get Up Nation? My name is Ben Biddick, the host of the Get Up Nation podcast and co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Leah Saragusa, a cancer survivor, co-survivor, and caregiver, about her and her husband's journey facing cancer together. Sammy Mansfield connected me with Leah. Sammy joined me on the podcast for episode 17 to share her passion for empowering those battling cancer with a functional fitness program called BUILD as part of Cancer Wellness for Life. I'm honored by the introduction, and I'm honored Leah shared her journey with Get Up Nation. Listen here how Leah shares how she remained resilient by her acceptance of her mortality, her celebration and adoration of strength, disciplining herself to ask for help when she needed it, advocated for herself during her treatment, and continually challenges herself to get beyond her comfort zone to truly live a life of meaning, purpose, connection, and accomplishment. This Get Up Nation podcast episode concludes with the song called Hush Hush Baby by Alexandra. Thank you, Alexandra, for giving me permission to include your amazing song in this podcast episode. If you're looking for insights in how to be more resilient, experience more peace or strength in your life during adversity, or an increased ability to overcome your challenges, subscribe to the Get Up Nation podcast at getupnationpodcast.com. Leah, thank you for taking time to share your journey with Get Up Nation. Recently, Sammy Mansfield, the prior guest on the podcast and creator of Cancer Wellness for Life, connected me with you. I've been looking forward to talking with you and hearing about your journey. I'm honored you've taken time to connect with me today. Well, thank you for talking to me. I look forward to answering your questions. You're a cancer survivor, caregiver, and co-survivor. To begin, will you share how you how you were first impacted by cancer? Well, I was first impacted, let's see, 22 years ago, my mom was diagnosed at 46 years old with her child of breast cancer. So that was my first experience. And then... Her older sister had a couple of different forms of cancer, and then my mom was diagnosed again at 60. So that was my first exposure. And then my husband and I were married about 18 months when he was diagnosed with head and neck cancer. Could you share some of what you experienced as you cared for your husband as he battled cancer? You know, it's interesting. I'm a firm believer that you have to be an advocate for yourself or the person that you're caring for. The cancer business and it truly is a business, is very intimidating, especially when you get into the large cancer centers where the care is very good typically, but it's very fast-paced. So I had had enough experience with treatment plans and uh, side effects and things like that that when Scott was diagnosed, um, I was able to stand back and help him advocate for himself and be his advocate when he was overwhelmed. There was a point in time where they were really running roughshod over him, telling him what his care was going to be 
he wasn't comfortable with that, but he didn't know how to tell them to step off. And I did. I see. So that was, there was a lot of that. And really it's about telling them what you feel and what you're comfortable with. And having the strength to stand up to people who are really there to help you, but do a good job of telling you this is how it's going to go. You want to trust them, but you also have to teach yourself. How did that experience affect you then as five years later then you received a diagnosis? How did the experience of seeing what Scott endured affect you as you prepared for your own battle? Well, mm, head and neck is really different from most other cancers. My husband was very lucky in that his was not as severe in a lot of ways as other head and neck cancers could be. He didn't have any lasting facial scarring that most people could see. Um, he does have some long-lasting effects in his mouth that are typical of somebody who gets their head radiated 36 times. But he is able to move on with his life in a way that most head and neck cancer patients don't typically get to. So his experience for me as a caretaker taught me lessons in how to navigate the paperwork and the insurance and the hmm. billing hmm. more than it did the actual cancer experience. So when I was diagnosed, <clears throat> the timing was sleep. Not that it's ever good, but it was particularly bad for me. I um, I had just found out that I was, I had been given five months notice that my office was closing. So I was essentially losing my job. And I was three months away from graduating from college, finally. I'd been working on it for like seven years. The timing was horrendous. And then I had to add in this stage 3D cancer diagnosis of a super aggressive breast cancer. So for me, it was really just the experience of navigating the paperwork didn't scare me. Because I've been there and done that. I think that's a lot of patients' biggest fear, even though you're scared of the treatment, you're scared of the pain, um, you're scared of the side effects. It really gets overwhelming when you have to start dealing with doctors and appointments, insurance, and all these other ancillary things that become overwhelming. How did you and your husband take back some of the power to advocate for each other and to, I don't know if I'm using the right terms, but to, to advocate for yourself and own the process in a way that you were comfortable with or that you were satisfied with? I think the best thing that somebody can do is take, always have somebody with you at doctor's appointments. Because once you hear that diagnosis, your brain kind of shuts off. Like, you hear the words, you have cancer, and it's very difficult to hear anything after that. And mm. even at subsequent appointments, there are things that somebody will say to you that, it's very hard to hear anything after that. You know, you have cancer and your brain shuts off, and you have to have chemo and your brain kind of shuts off, and then you have to have a double mastectomy, your brain kind of shuts off. Hmm. So you have to have somebody there with you. That's the first piece of advice I would have. And then the second piece of advice is never use Google. Okay. <laughs> I had a rule that I was never allowed to. Dr. Google was not allowed in our house. I see. I see. Um, if I wanted to research something or if I had a burning question in my mind, I had to email my nurse at the oncology group or I had three websites I was allowed to use because if I went out on Dr. Google, Lord only knows what I was going to find. I see. So 
limit your resources and your research to the people you know are trustworthy because that will send you off into a world of things that can be very scary. And I think probably the other biggest piece of advice is use the resources at the hospital to the best of their ability. KU is where I went, and there's some great cancer centers in Kansas City outside of KU, but because we had experiences there with Scott's cancer, that's where we went. And they have some great resources as far as patient advocates, insurance help, billing help, social work help. They helped me reach out to groups that were able to help us with financial stuff because I was losing my job. I was going to have to pay for COBRA for my insurance. That was more than tripling our insurance costs and things like that. So use the resource that those are in the hospital isn't telling you. Ask. Ask for help. Asking for help is a real hard thing for a lot of people. I, it certainly was for me. I, I have a terrible time for it. To this day, I can't. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around asking for help. But I learned to do it because we had to. I mean, realistically, you have to ask for help. You're going through this. Even if you have a great support system around you, you're still going to have to ask for help. And using the resources at your, you know, your oncology center or your church or whatever, whatever social circle may be, ask for help. Because people want to help, they just don't know how. How can medical providers or people in the medical field who are serving people battling cancer, how can they be a true help? How can they not treat people like numbers or a diagnosis? How can people in the medical field be a true support, a true inspiration, a true caregiver that serves with selflessness? How can they be effective in that way? you found to help you not feel that helplessness and to find those things each day, that silver lining, part of that was the build program for you, correct? Absolutely, yes. Will you describe that to our listeners? I was really lucky because Sammy was still at KU that when I was, I was actually going in for counseling because my mental state was really 
um, I was really struggling. And I'm not ashamed to say that my husband and I were really struggling. Because we've both been through cancer, we needed to go to counseling. There is a form of, I hate using the term PTSD, but it is similar to a PTSD. And you kind of get to a point after you've had cancer or during cancer where there are so many triggers and so many stressors, and it can happen to somebody in treatment, it can happen to somebody post-treatment, and it was really putting a lot of stress on our marriage, so I was going to counseling, and Scott ended up going to counseling, and we worked on our marriage, but when I was in counseling one day, I mentioned that I just, I was exhausted, the fatigue, the mental stress, all of that, and counselor said, you know, I really think exercise would help, and I know the right person for you to talk to, and Sammy happened to be in office, and I set up an appointment with her, and I met with her very briefly, and I wasn't in the right mind frame to start at that time, but then when Bill started, I decided I'd take a shot at it. I'd heard of CrossFit, was super scary when it first started and it was very elite apparently and I thought you know maybe I'll I'll take a shot at it and the first day I went into the gym was terrifying because I'm big and I'm you know I didn't have much hair and all these other things but I found my people and I found this exercise program that suits my personality and it's been an amazing journey um I never thought I would join a gym of any kind. It's always been a failure for me before, but the hill is my second home at this point, and I don't have to go to my build class to be there. I go on, on off days. I don't just go on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I go on my off days, too, and I go to open gym, and I do my workouts. It's just, it's been a gift, and I'm so grateful to Sammy for that. You mentioned how important it was for you to reach out for help. A lot of people are tempted with the mentality that says, well, I'm tough enough, I'm strong enough, I'm just going to bulldoze through it, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes that leads to destructive behavior or overwhelm or more fear or increased anxiety. How was asking for help vital for you to connect with something so empowering? Because I'm not good at asking for help, I knew going in that it was going to be a daily exercise for me to push myself out of that comfort zone. And I knew from past experience that asking for help was going to be vital. I was self-aware enough to see that coming. It didn't make it any easier, but I knew it was there. Asking for help saved my marriage. Uh, I can honestly say that without asking for help and both of us being open enough to go receive that help, we would not be in as, as good of a place as we are. And we're great. We are stronger now than we would have been before. And I know a lot of people who don't make it through that kind of trauma. A job loss, cancers, all of that, that can really blow marriages apart. And asking for help saved our marriage and made us stronger and wiser and better at this marriage thing, which is a lot of work. It saved us financially because I knew that with the job loss, that our financial situation was going to be precarious, and it was. But because I was smart enough to advocate, hey, I don't think we're going to make it through this without help, they were able to get us locked into some social programs that were able to help us navigate that. And 
minimize the damage to us financially. Now, we still had to empty our 401k accounts. We still had to max out everything we had, but we didn't lose our house. Hmm. And we didn't lose our cars. And, you know, I mean, all of those things that a lot of, you know, a lot of people have to deal with. But, you know, asking for help saved us from some of that. You know, my kid did not have to go to camp that summer because there's a program here in town called the Stephanie Vest Foundation that helps families deal with breast cancer minimize some of the things that you would lose during a treatment. Like, we asked for help with camp fees because those were the ancillary things that we were going to have to get rid of. And they came in and they said, yes, we'll help you with those. So Wiley could go to day camp in the summer instead of having to sit around with me while I was getting radiation. So, you know, asking for help helps keep from our family from really getting down into the doldrums. And that's what happens if you don't ask. You really get deep into a hole and sometimes you can't dig yourself out. That's what I was wondering about is as far as you and your husband's process, when those walls are closing in, when you're looking at the bank account, when dealing with pain and fatigue and nausea and all of these things that can be so crushing, when you're in that moment of overwhelm and you're in that moment where it feels so dark, what was an approach that you took or where did you go either inside yourself or or with someone else? What what did you do in those moments to help you persevere through that moment? You know, I just decided that I wasn't afraid to die. I mean, and that's the honest truth. I'm still, like, not afraid to die. I looked at that and made a decision from then on that... It wasn't, you know, we're all going to die. That's the end for everybody. When it's is really not your choice. So, at least in my opinion, I know other people don't necessarily agree with that. But for me, I decided I'm not afraid of it. That's what's meant to be. Then that's happened. And once you take away that overarching fear of this could kill me, you stop asking questions like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. It's irrelevant to me why that happened to me. That's something you deal with every day, and you do the best you can every day to get through that day, and you move on. You, mm-hmm. you just you don't wallow in sorrow and sadness and pain and all of the things that come with this. Just get through the day, and you go to the next day. And you don't let fear and anger and all of these things weigh on you because you're not afraid to die and you're not going to let all of that suffocate you. And I'm not saying I didn't have bad days because, you know, my friends and family will tell you that there were times after my surgery when I couldn't, like, my skin wouldn't heal or whatever it was. I could, there were times that I could not pull myself out of um, that bad space. But mm-hmm. overall, I managed fairly well to keep from getting down and not being able to get up because I just chose not to be afraid. I see. So people should understand as as they enter that, that that's a common thing to feel those feelings, to feel that overwhelm, to, to know that they're not alone in that and that that's part of the process at times. I just hate for people to feel like that they're alone in that. In the people that I've talked to, Part of the power of these experiences is the solidarity it creates by experiencing that, but then knowing that there are others who are also experiencing that 
and the hope that that brings about and the comfort and calm that that creates in place of an anxiety where, where that might be frightening to somebody. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you're joining a very, not sad, but you're joining a club, really, that mm. nobody wants to join. Mm. There are a lot of members. We're everywhere. You can turn your head and look around in a crowd, and there's going to be a lot of people who are in this club, whether as a caretaker or as a, you know, a cancer survivor or a cancer patient, current patient. So there's a lot of people around who are very familiar with this. I would say, in addition, that people will feel alone during this process because friends and family don't know how to act. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to help. There's really challenges with your support system, knowing what to do for you. And that was something that I faced consistently because I didn't have a work family anymore because my personal family, like my my side of the family is not close by. My in-laws are close by and that was great, but my mom's not here. My dad's not here. My stepmom's not here. My brother's not here. So I faced a very lonely thing where people just don't know what to say so they don't say anything and that is a common problem people don't want to face cancer they're scared of it they're scared of offending the cancer patient or the caretakers they just disappear i got ghosted by several people Hmm. and it wasn't because they didn't love me or didn't care about me it's because they were so uncomfortable they just disappeared Hmm. That is a common thing that happens, and people should understand that as a cancer patient, they need to reach out, too. They need to speak up. I used social media a lot. I, I documented my whole process on Facebook so that people understood, hey, listen, I may be sitting here in my pajamas because it's chemo week, but you should come over. Like, come over and sit with me. I don't care if you're, you know, you got bedhead too, if it's your day off work. Come over and sit with me and talk to me about anything but cancer. Hmm. But that happens a lot to people, and that's why people feel so isolated. So, you know, yeah, you're joining a club that's really big, but make sure your people that aren't part of the club understand you don't want to be alone. You said, you know what, we, we, all, we all die at some point, and you face that head on. What sort of power did that create in you? I know in in speaking with Sammy, she just remarked about how powerful cancer survivors are and how people think of the symptoms that make people's bodies feel weak or fatigued. But the true core of who people are as they face that adversity creates immense power. I think the power that I felt really had to do with choices. I didn't choose to just follow blunt with my medical team. If I didn't feel like doing what they said, I didn't. And a lot of people don't do that. And I, you know, I obviously wasn't going to go off my treatment plan. But if they told me something that wasn't comfortable for me, I didn't do it. And then, you know, that a lot of times had to do with you need to take whatever pain medication, you need to whatever antidepressant, with your nerve pain or whatever, those things were dumbing me down to the point where I couldn't hold a coherent conversation. And everybody kept telling me, oh, well, that's just chemo brain. That's the way you're going to have to live. I chose to thank you very much. I will not do that. Hmm. And I worked my way out of that. 
you know, and, and there were times when you know, I got told you can't, you can't go do something you enjoy because of what I disagreed with that. You know, I worked part-time all the way to chemo. I was grateful that my company allowed me to do that. So, no, I didn't just go lay down and, you know, fall asleep all day during chemo. I went to work, hmm. and some of my medical team was not entirely sure about that. Hmm. And, you know, it, a lot of the times the power that I felt was really just me being me, but having to be me even in the middle of, you know, this adversity. That a lot of people really looked at me and said, oh, my, are you really doing this? Are, are you not just falling apart? And it was, you know, for me, it was like, I can't fall apart. I'm losing my job. I have this degree that I'm six weeks away from. I refuse to give up. And I don't have time to fall apart. I have to just do this and get out of my way. Hmm. I've talked with other survivors about the, the triggers that happen where, you know, you're concerned. Is, is it is it coming back or oh, this? I have this bruise. What is that bruise and, and things like that? How do you and your husband help support each other now after battle that you have been through? You know, I, I'm probably atypical in a lot of ways. I don't worry as much about it as maybe I should. Um, my particular kind of breast cancer has a fairly high recurrence rate, and there's nothing I can really do about it. I can't, I can't take any of the medications that people with based breast cancer can take. Triple negative doesn't have any, like there's really no preventative other than just doing the best you can to stay healthy. And even that really isn't a guarantee. So I really worry about it. I worry more about injuring myself when I'm working out and figuring out how to, you know, keep that from happening. My husband does a pretty good job of managing his expectations as well. You know, for him, he just he just wants to go to work and live his life, and he doesn't want to think about it anymore. As far as he's concerned, he's six years out. He's done. But we both try and pay attention to the real outliers, the oddities. When I first started working out, I really started stretching my scar tissue, and I call it my baby peck. I have a bump right along my scar line, and I jokingly call it my baby peck because when it first popped out, I thought, ooh, that's a lump. And I went to my doctor, and she looked at it, and she goes, well, no, you're working out. You're stretching your scar tissue. And I thought, well, okay, that's not a lump. I don't have to worry about that anymore. So now mm. I know what my scar does when I do a lot of push-ups or a lot of pull-ups or a lot of bench press or whatever. You know, you just, you manage your expectations based on how you feel. And Scott doesn't want to think about it. He's done. I just, if it's going to come back, it's going to come back. There's nothing I can really do about it other than try and be the healthiest I can and treat my body not like an amusement park. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know, which I, I'm not going to lie, I used to do. I mean... I had risk factors because I didn't take care of myself. And the risk factors may not have played into what I ended up with. Um, my doctor made it a point to tell me at one point in my treatment that, listen, you didn't do this to yourself. It just happens. I don't know if I believe that. I certainly didn't take as good a care of myself as I should have or could have. And now I'm going to do my best to do better for the last half of my life. And that's 
you know, that's all I can do. Amazing. I really appreciate you taking time out, Leah. Your insights into this process is going to be empowering for so many people. And I really appreciate you sharing your journey, both you and Scott, with, with this podcast. I always end the show with six questions to help my audience better understand how my phenomenal guests view the world and adversity. Will you run through these six questions with me? Sure. All right. Who are you thankful for today? Sammy. Because without her... I would not have found something that I really, really love and consider a vital part of my life. And what are you thankful for today? My life. I wouldn't have that if I wouldn't have thought so hard. How do you fuel the fire within you? Um, I ask why not instead of why. What was one thing adversity taught you to value? Strength. Mental and physical strength. When you have it taken away from you and you can't get up off the couch, there is nothing more important than being able to reach your arms up above your head to do something or to be able to push yourself up off the floor or to be able to lift a bag of dog food out of the back of your truck. Strength is the most important thing to hmm. me. And what are you doing today you never thought you could? <laughs> I've never seen anything like it, and when I walk into the gym, at least three days a week, I do crossfit. Awesome. And then what will you do tomorrow you never thought you could? I will continue to step outside my comfort zone personally and professionally. I make it a point at least once a day every day to push myself to do something that I am uncomfortable with. Uh, I work in a job that requires a lot of mental capacity, and I refuse to believe that my brain can't but anymore because of chemo or radiation or whatever. I make myself do things, even though it's scary and hard. I love it. You are a true warrior. I just have so much respect for you and your husband. I love your mentality. It's been an honor to help share your story on the Get Up Nation podcast. If people want to reach out to you, how would you prefer they contact you? I do have a public Twitter, but my the rest of my social media is locked down, but everybody's willing, you know, if they're, they want to reach out to me, send me a request and I'll friend them. Okay. Um, I am on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, so yeah, you can search for Leah Saragusa and I'm out there. I think I'm the only one. I don't, my name is not very common, so okay. you'll find some uh, pictures of my dogs and my CrossFit workouts, so I'm not terribly interesting, but I would talk to anybody, anytime, and Honestly, I would love to talk to more survivors because I think a lot of people out there who could benefit from something like Build um, or even just doing something where they lift things and move things that doesn't involve a treadmill and where they feel strong again. And I think that's lacking and I think people could use that in their lives when they're pre-treatment in treatment or post-treatment, I think that's important. So I'm willing to talk to anybody about that anytime. Amazing. I love it. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. Such an honor to speak with Leah Saragusa, whose example and insights are so valuable to us all, regardless of what we're facing. What a phenomenal example for us in times when we may experience thoughts and emotions of helplessness and hopelessness to know we are not alone, to surround ourselves with those people who, when we do ask for help, when we do need help, do not exploit our vulnerability 
but reach out selflessly to help us back onto our feet, back into the trenches, back into moments that may contain immense pain, but also great glory. What if we as people made it a priority to recognize what people are experiencing around us, to get ahead of processes of suffering, be proactive, and reject organizational situations and circumstances that breed a sense of helplessness. Instead, we could imbue the truth of how powerful people are and can be. If organizations were thoughtful and emotionally intelligent about their actions, then the people they are attempting to serve wouldn't have to ask for help as often to articulate for them a better way to do their jobs when they are already in need of relief. When leaders of organizations set out to serve, they create an organization that holds itself accountable for effective services, and from the satisfying excellence of their service, they develop the ability to be sustainable and grow. When leaders of organizations lose sight of service in pursuit of profit, then everyone suffers. Those fighting for their lives see their suffering compounded instead of alleviated. What if members at all levels of public service organizations saw themselves, their actions, and their systems through the eyes of those they served instead of through the eyes of their ego? Then those they served would know their value, sense their honor, and those that were serving would receive the satisfaction of knowing their time and energy was put to good use and created a world they are energized to continue to create. And now please enjoy the song Hush Hush Baby by Alexandra. Thank you. Nobody will break you. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. 
help me out when I dive too deep The world is yours, you said you wild, you cared I love you so, love you so, and I love you